One more minute, everyone. One more minute. Try and get all three. I'm going to pick a pair to give me all three answers. So I'm going to pick someone here. I find that creates adrenaline and fear, and that's a good teaching tool. OK? So off you go. And then I'm going to go back to England. I'll humiliate you and go back to England. So off we go. Someone's going to get picked. It's going to be lovely. Off we go. Okay. Okay, brothers, verses 27 to 30. Verses 27 to 30, where is their blindness and sight? So who is blind and who can see in 27 to 30 over identity? Who's blind? Who are the people who are blind there? The disciples are blind, and particularly, I mean, they're, they're, they're there, but particularly, do you see, who do people say I am? They replied, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, still others one of the prophets. So if you're among the some who say, who is Jesus? And you look into the face of Jesus and you say, oh, he's a great prophet. So I go to Speaker's Corner in London. It's a, it's a place where you go up a ladder and you preach. There are many Muslims who go there. When I come down off the ladder, the Muslims say, Jesus, he's a great prophet. And the moment they say that, what do we know about them? They are blind. I go home at Christmas. There's my Aunt Agatha there. I get home, she said, how do you spend your time? I said, well, I spend quite a bit of time talking about Jesus in Mark's Gospel. And Aunt Agatha says, oh, Jesus, he's a great teacher. What do we know about her? She's blind. Well, she really is blind, actually. But anyway, no, she's blind. <laughs> That's it, okay? Who is the one who can see? Who can see here? That's it. Now, brothers, this has got to be a lifelong friend, this passage. Peter sees. So here are the two issues. Is he a great man? or a prophet, or is he the Christ? And at last, Peter's seen it. So God has opened Peter's eyes. Suddenly, Peter goes, you know, who do you say I am, says Jesus to Peter. And he says, you raised the dead girl. You flattened the storm. You're, you're the Christ. He sees it. And often when people are on the course, I will ask them to score themselves one to ten on the identity of Jesus, as I see how the Holy Spirit is doing his work, opening their eyes. So one, he's just a carpenter. Ten, he's Lord and God. I say, where are you on that? It may be that you're not a Christian here. Thank you for coming. Score yourself one to ten on this. Where are you on Jesus? Six, he's a prophet. What do you think of Jesus? He's a great teacher. That's three. So Peter at last sees it. Uh, and it's amazing, uh, actually, how you do see blindness. Look, do you know this guy, Bill Bryson? He's a very comical, self-deprecating writer. And uh, he's an American. And uh, he's, uh, do you know him? He, he's, he's a travel writer. And he's revisiting the Grand Canyon, having been there 40 years before. He's now went there with his family. He's now doing another trip around the States. And this is what happens. 
Nothing prepares you for the Grand Canyon, no matter how many times you see it, uh, see about how many times you read about it or see it pictured, it still takes your breath away. Even children are stilled by it. I was a particularly talkative and obnoxious child, but it stopped me cold. Anyway, he then visits it again 40 years later, and he can't wait to get there. And then when he arrives, there's a total blanket of fog. So you can't see anything. He's just turned up and there's nothing there. And then he writes this. Uh, a middle-aged couple came along, and as we stood there chatting about what a dispiriting experience this was, with all the fog down, a miraculous thing happened. The fog just parted. It just silently drew back, like a set of theatre curtains being opened, and suddenly we saw that we were on the edge of a sheer giddying drop of at least a 1,000 feet. Jesus, we said, and jumped back. And all along the Grand Canyon, you could hear people saying Jesus, like a message being passed down a line. And then for many fretful moments... All was silent except for the tiny fretful shiftings of snow because out there in front of us was the most awesome, most silencing sight that exists on earth. Now that is amazing on, on, on Bryson. That is blindness. There he is. He's at the Grand Canyon and Jesus is just a swear word. And yet, who made the Grand Canyon? The Lord Jesus. So he's just a swear word, the name. And when I read that first, I thought that is amazing blindness. And yet, Jesus is the one by whom and in whom all things were made, Colossians 1. That's blindness. What's Bryson? He's on one. He's just, he's just a swear word. So what do you see as you see the Grand Canyon? And do you see Jesus as the creator of it? So that's blindness to who Jesus is. But secondly, why did Jesus come? Let's have a look down again. Let's have a look. Okay, who's blind and who can see to the cross of Jesus, to his mission... Who's blind and who can see to his mission in verses 31 to 33? So who's the one who's blind? It's interesting, isn't it? Peter can see who Jesus is, but he can't yet see why he came. So he works out Jesus is the Christ, and he says, Right, Jesus, let's go to Jerusalem. You move into number 10 Downing Street. I'll move in next door to number 11. We'll rule. We'll, we'll lead it. Sorry, what's it? Where's the White House? Well, I know it's in Washington. I know it's in Washington. <laughs> what street's it on? What's Pennsylvania Avenue. Pennsylvania Avenue. Okay, you move into number whatever the White House is. I'll move in next door. I've just contextualized my talk there for you. Okay? That's what's going on here, okay? Peter says, we've got a rule. But, Pete, but, 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 uh, but, but Jesus, who's the one who can see in this passage? Who in verse 31 can see? Well, Satan is doing the blinding of Peter, but who's the one who can see in 31? He spent began to teach him, the Son of Man must suffer many things, be rejected by the elders, chief priests, and teachers of the law. Jesus can see. And Jesus says, I must go and die. And here is the issue. The Christian believer says, yes, Lord Jesus, you must go and die, because otherwise I will have to pay for my sin myself in hell. That's what we say. When we see Jesus go to Jerusalem, we say, yes, you must go, or I pay for my sin in eternal torment. Jesus, go to Jerusalem. Go to die. Go and pay in death and blood. Go and drink the cup. Lord Jesus, you must go, because I cannot face God's wrath myself. So the believer, you see, as you look at the cross, do you see like Peter, do you see a waste, did you jot this down, or is it a rescue? That's the issue. What do you see as you see the cross? And again, there's tremendous blindness to it. This is a book by Billy Connolly, who's a foul-mouthed Scottish comedian. Is he around? 
You know, you come across him. I picked it up because the opening chapter was interesting. It was entitled, Jesus is Dead and It's Your Fault. I thought that was a pretty striking title. And uh, this is what happens. Billy Connolly has a brutal upbringing. His mother leaves home when he's two. She just deserts. And his father molests him. He has to share a bed with his father. He gets molested. So he longs to go on holiday where he won't be molested by his dad. That's what he longs for on holiday. So he has his own bed. But he's six years old at this point, And this is what happens. When he moved up to the boys' school at six years old, there was a harshness he'd not experienced in kindergarten. In the main hallway, there was a massive crucifix, a bleeding life-size Christ that thoroughly spooked him. Billy had not yet been fully indoctrinated into the faith, but once he was at the boys' school, that occurred as swiftly and as subtly as a fishhook in the nostril. On his first day at his new school, his teacher, Miss Wilson, informed him that Jesus was dead and that he, Billy, was personally responsible. So there's a massive bleeding life-size Christ and Billy walks in and he's told it's your fault and he's absolutely blind. He's got no idea, this six-year-old, what's going on. He's just told it's your fault. Jesus on the cross, it's your fault. He's blind. So what happens? Let me read you this. This is 45 years later. He's at the Royal Albert Hall and, uh, in central London and this is what we read. At the end of the Billy and Albert show at the Royal Albert Hall, Billy farewelled 6,000 aching people with it's been a pleasure talking to you. Don't worry, I'm the one going to hell. Blind. Amen. Absolutely blind. So the question is, what do you see when you see Jesus go to Jerusalem? Do you say he must go to Jerusalem? And uh, again, in week five of the course, therefore we ask the, this question that, that, that um, uh, uh, we picked up from Evangelism Explosion. It's a great question. We, we don't do it on the doorstep. We do it after we've been in relationship with people for five weeks but we asked the question, if you were to die tonight and God said, why shall I let you into heaven, what would you reply? And what do people say? They say, well, you know, as they put their trust in themselves, they say, well, I've been good enough. I mean, I, I don't steal. I keep the Ten Commandments. I give to charity. I've not been a murderer or a, ra or a, or a, or a rapist or a dentist or a, <laughs> or a traffic warden. I'm not one of those people. Just to say, if you are a dentist, I'm sorry, but if you work in traffic, you may want to talk to me afterwards. Um, I, I, I don't lie. One guy said to me, in all honesty, he said, Rico, I'm a blood donor, I give blood. I had to go to the loo to recover. He said, oh, no, in all sincerity, I'll be led into heaven because I've given liters of blood. Or, or others go down the religious route. I mean, I, I go to church. Actually, I don't just go to church. I'm a member of the Church of England. I'm an Anglican. You know that, don't you? Why is it the Anglicans will be first in heaven? Because it says in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 that the dead in Christ will rise first. That's us, honestly. <laughs> I, I, I've been baptized. I, I, I've been confirmed by a bishop, you know. A bishop confirmed me. That's why I'm going. I read the Bible. I pray. I go to communion. In England, they say, because there's this program on Sunday, song, uh, on Sunday night called Songs of Praise, they say, they say to me, I watch Songs of Praise. God will allow me in because I do that. And what we say, if you're trusting in those things, we say these things will do you no good at all. These are like a band-aid on a gaping wound. They won't, they're good things, but they won't pay for my sin. Now, what do you see as you see the cross? So again, that's the next question. What do you see as you look at the cross? Do you see a waste or a rescue? Score yourself one to ten. And if you want to see blindness, we won't do it now, but jot this down. Mark chapter 15 for blindness. It's amazing how people are blind to what's happening at the cross. There is Pilate wanting to satisfy the crowd. He's blinded by his own ambition. Mark 15, verse 15. 
There are the, the soldiers. What do the soldiers think the main legacy of the cross is? Do you remember what do the soldiers think? What's the main thing you get out of the cross? The clothes. Now that's blindness. It's the most important death in history and they say, oh, what you get is a robe. What about the religious authorities as they shout out? Do you remember what they shout out? He saved others, he can't save himself. Let this king of Israel come down off the cross. Blindness. How is he saving others? By not saving himself. That's how he saves others. Can you see? The bystander. Oh, let's see if Elijah saves him. Mark 15, 36. Let's see, if, let's see if he's saved. So he's there for the show, the bystander. He's like millions of Americans who go to church Christmas and Easter because their grandmother took them along and it makes them feel sentimental. They're blind. They're just there for the show. Millions of Britons do it as well. Absolutely blind, detached from the death of Jesus. So, you know, Christmas he was born to die on earth. something to do with me. So I get people at the door. You preach your heart out at a carol service in England and at the door they say... That was lovely. See you next year. You know, oh, blind. Who is the one person who can see? Do you remember the climax of Mark's gospel? Mark 15, verse 39. The centurion who looks up and says, surely this man was the son of God. So God opens his blind eyes. And who is the one that God calls to himself as, as, as he sees what Jesus has done on the cross? It's the centurion who has, oh, isn't this typical of God? Who has just led his own son's murder squad. Now that is grace. So if you think there's something you can't be forgiven, is it worse than leading the murder squad of God's son? That's the grace of God. It's unbelievable that God should yet call that centurion who's just murdered his own son. So what do you see when you see the cross? Waste or rescue again? Maybe you're someone investigating. Would you score yourself 1 to 10 on the cross? So 1, look, I'm sorry, it's just a Galilean carpenter dying. 10, he died for me in my place. 6, 7, look, I know that this thing wrongdoing is a thing, and I know it's connected with the death of Jesus. I just haven't worked that out, but I, it's, it's, more than just, it's more than just a death. It's bigger than that. I don't know, where, where are you on that? And again, in our churches, we can have people that are absolutely blind, I had to take communion to an old lady a few years ago, and I walked up to her, her place, and I said as I laid out the communion, there was the bread, there was the wine, the little service, I said, what are we doing? She said, well, it's an act of community. I can't get to church, so you're coming to me. I said, that's right. I said, what else are we doing? She said, what do you mean? I said, well, do you realize that as we eat the bread and we drink the wine, we're saying about the death of Jesus, it's for me. We're saying that he's paid for our wrongdoing. There was a pause, and she looked at me, and she said, that's disgusting. I said, what? She said, that's disgusting. She said, I'll pay for my sin myself. I said to her, no, 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 you can't do that. I mean, I can't give you communion if that's the case, because the whole point is Christ pays for your sin. She said, young man, I'll have my communion immediately. I'm such a moral coward, I gave it to her, but she wasn't converted, was she? <laughs> wasn't converted. And I tell you what, I was so depressed as I walked back down the street, I had to have a Mars bar. I had to change my feelings. I was, and as you can see, I've had a few. But I mean, it was desperate. Absolutely blind she was. So what do you see? Now the third one, the call of Jesus. Let's have a look at the call. Verse 34. What are the choices in verse 34? What are the two ways you can go in verse 34? Do we see? Have a look at verse 34. Then he called the crowd to him along with his disciples. He said, if anyone would come after me, 
He must deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. What are the two ways you can go there with the call? All over American, pe America, people go one way when they should go the other. What are the two ways you can go? Well, on verse 34 alone, what are the choices in verse 34? What's the choice he presents you with? Either you obey and you deny yourself, so either you obey the call and you take up your cross, or you disobey. And that's the problem, isn't it? All over the UK and America, people know who Jesus is, they know why he came, but then they say, actually, no one tells me how to live my life. So they know who he is, they know he died for me, and then they say, no, no, I'm the, I'm the master. I'm the one in charge. And if I may say in the States, speaking as, you know, the pioneer spirit in this country means that no one tells you what to do. You save yourself. No one tells you what to do. And, you know, it, 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 you know it's, it's a remarkable thing, the self-reliance of it. But actually, you know, what we're told here is that if anyone would, would come after me, he must deny his cross, take up his cross, deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. So I am to obey Jesus. Now, why should I do it in verse 38? Why do it in verse 38, do we see? If anyone is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will be ashamed of him when he comes in his Father's glory with the holy angels. In other words, the reason to obey is if I'm convinced that the Son of Man, who in verse 31 is going to suffer and die, is the same Son of Man who's going to return and rule from the judgment on. You see, what's the key thing in verse 36? What have I got in verse 36 that's absolutely fundamental? What have I got? What do I own in verse 36? Your soul, exactly. You see, the reason to obey Jesus is that he holds my soul. And in Mark chapter 9, he stands at the head of history. So it, here's the phrase I use. It's a no-brainer obeying him. If he's the Lord of history, it makes perfect sense. It's no suicide gesture for me to give Jesus my time, my life, my energy, everything. 167,000 people martyred, fine, because he holds the future. And if he holds the future, I'm allying myself with him. He is the Lord of creation, Mark chapter 9, the transfiguration. There he is in, 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 in glowing white. So of course I come to him, of course I obey him. But of course, so many people are unconverted because they know who he is, they know why he came. But you know this, this is what destroys our churches. They just don't obey. They won't do it. Now, I think this is the most poignant illustration that I've used whilst being a pastor. I've only been a pastor 17 years. But this, for me, is the most poignant illustration this point in time. Here is Dietrich Bonhoeffer's book, The Cost of Discipleship. So Bonhoeffer was martyred 1945. So the Gestapo hanged him in Flossenburg concentration camp. And he wrote this book, The Cost of Discipleship. And, and the, one of the key themes of this book, it's opening, by the way, it's opening, uh, opening paragraph is when Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die in The Cost of Discipleship. But in this book, Bonhoeffer asked the question, why was it? that people who had been in Sunday school in Lutheran and Catholic churches ended up as Nazi guards in gas chambers. How did that happen? I mean, Hitler didn't kill six million Jews on his own. How did he mobilize all these people who'd been in church when they were young? And the answer that Bonhoeffer gives is this. He says, 
In Germany, in the churches, it was taught that if you were a priest or a nun, then you gave your whole life in Christian commitment. So you took seriously verse 34, take up your cross and follow me. But otherwise, just turn up on Sunday morning and live the rest of your life as you please. And he said that was the key issue that led Germany to manning the gas chambers. That was the key issue. That the cost of discipleship was not taught. Now that is the most important illustration of the 20th century because the scar of the 20th century are the gas chambers. The Nazi guards had been in Catholic and Lutheran churches as they grew up, but they were never taught the cost of discipleship. They were taught, well, if you're that keen, become a priest, become a nun, become a missionary. The rest of us, turn up Sunday morning, do what you like the rest of the time. So I've got to teach the cost. And the heart of the cost, as we look down here, let's have a look at the heart of the cost. Have a look down. Nine, chapter 9, verse 33. They came to Capernaum. When he was in the house, he asked them, what were you arguing about on the road? But they kept quiet because on the way they'd argued about who was the greatest. It's amazing. Jesus just done a study day on his death. He's the Lord of creation. And uh, in response to this study day on his death, when he says, I've got to go and die, they have a discussion about who's the greatest. Now that's blindness, isn't it? Verse 35, sitting down, Jesus called the twelve to him. He said, if anyone would, would, wants to be first, he must be the very last and the servant of all. And in Mark's gospel, the heart of following Jesus is becoming a servant. In fact, in fact, there are four words that describe the four gospels. John's gospel is how high, it's the word made flesh. Luke's gospel is how wide. So it's the Gentiles, the women, come in as Luke, the Gentile doctor, speaks about it. Matthew's gospel is how deep. It's Old Testament prophecy fulfilled as Matthew speaks to a Jewish audience primarily. But Mark's gospel is how low. Mark was the deserter who became a faithful servant of Jesus. And at the heart of Mark's gospel, Mark 10, verse 45, we follow the one. Let's have a look, Mark 10, verse 45, over the page. Do you see? Here's the heart of it. What do we learn about Jesus? For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. So I become a servant as a follower of Jesus. That's what I'm to be. I'm to be a servant. That's what I want to cross my grave. So, so, so that, that, that's Mark's gospel. It's amazing. Who is he? Why did he come? What does it mean to follow him? Now what's extraordinary, and let, let's just uh, uh, have a look at this now. Let's just have a little look at this. Is, um, is actually what happens if I leave one of these out in my gospel presentation. So just in pairs, can you just do this now? Can you please tell me, just in pairs, what happens if I know who Jesus is, I know why he came, but on the call, well, I say, you know, that's a discipleship issue, it's not an evangelism issue. Just in pairs, give me three results pastorally of that. Just over to you, just as we, as we draw to a close. The results of not preaching the call of Christ to be a disciple... Two people. What happens if you leave out Mark 8, 34 to 38?
Okay, guys, I'd love to go quicker than that, but leave that for you to do. But of course, what, what do you produce in your churches if you don't, if you don't preach the call? You, dentists. <laughs> Thank you very much. You produce, you produce people who are believers, not disciples. Our churches are full of them. And people actually in whom sin is attacking their life because they've not learned to fight sin. And they're not ready to suffer because they've not been taught to suffer. They're not ready to suffer. So when they do suffer, they blame it on God. They're not taught to persevere. And what do the non-Christians think of these people? What do the non-Christians think? They're hypocrites. So my dad, as a tobacco guy, he went on business trips with men who literally went from the brothel to mass on business trips. They literally went from the brothel to mass. And when I told him I was thinking of getting ordained, he said, Rico, don't do that. He said, honestly, son, don't do that. He said, these are disgusting people. Have nothing to do with these Christians. He said, I didn't go to the brothel with them. I didn't go to church with them either. It took my father 20 years to recover from the hypocrisy of his colleagues who went literally from the brothel to mass. Come back from a business trip, he'd pick us up at the airport, other men would embrace their families, they'd be in church the next day, he knew they'd be in the brothel the night before. Because their sexuality was not under the lordship of Christ. It's, a dis it's, it's an evangelism issue. Jesus is Lord. And Mark's gospel just teaches it. Now let's see what happens. Do we see as we flick over the page? Have a look here, guys. Look at the, have a look here. Just have a look, Mark 16, verses 6 to 8, as we look down, on, on the front page here, just on the front as you've got them of the picture here. Have a look there on the front, verses 6 to 8 of Mark 16. It's the ending of Mark's gospel, just in pairs. Tell me, where is their identity? Where is their mission? Where is their call in terms of those first, those first three lines? So, so there... Don't be alarmed, he said. You're looking for Jesus. There's identity, mission, and call. Can you see where they are, those three things? See if you can dig them out at the end of Mark's gospel. Okay, everyone, identity. What tells me he's not just a man? Which phrase? Risen. He's risen. Are your eyes open to the fact this, he is risen? He's not just a man. What about his mission? What's the bit that talks about his death? Place where they laid him, but also he was crucified. But when he was crucified, can you see what happened? He died for your sin. He was crucified. Do you see it? What about the call? What's the call on these women? Go and tell. Now, here's the issue. At the end of Mark's gospel, because the women don't understand, because they can't, I mean, they're to be commended. They were the last at the, at the cross. They're the first at the tomb. Everyone else is in hiding. But because they don't understand who Jesus is, why he came, what it means to follow him, they're told to go and tell. Actually, what do they do in the last couple of lines? Trembling and bewildered, the women went out, fled from the tomb. They said nothing to anyone because they were afraid. They ran and hide. They run and hide 
because they don't have the root in of identity mission call. They, so Mark chapter 4, 16 to 17, when trouble or persecution comes, they quickly fall away because they have no root. Brothers, this is the root. Who is he? Why did he come? What does it mean to follow him? Mark ends his gospel saying, here are these women who can't see who Jesus is. They're still blind. They can't see why he came. They can't see what it means to follow him. So they run and hide. And Mark is saying, in the midst of Nero's persecutions, so will you. You'll run and hide as well, unless you know who he is and why he came and what it means to follow him. But if you know that, you'll die for your faith. So Casey Burnell, um, uh, do you remember her, Littleton High School? Claiborne and Harris, the, the killers, 10, 12 years ago? Harris walks into the library, apparently, and he put a gun to her head. And he says to her, this 17-year-old girl, puts a gun to her head, he says, who is your God? He says, I am your God because I'm in total control, as he puts it to her head. And she says, you are not my God. And he blows her brains out. Now, I don't know who her parents were, and I don't know who her youth worker was, or I don't know who her pastor was. But that girl, to be martyred at that moment knew who Jesus was, she knew why he died, and she knew what it means to follow him. And that's why she died, and that's what we need to produce if we're going to turn the world around. We've got to produce all three. Do you know who he is? Do you know why he came? Do you know what it means to follow him? And the amazing thing is Mark's gospel just does the work for you. You just teach through Mark, and it does the work. Mark just takes us through. So I'm closing now. Three bits of homework for you. Three bits of homework as we close. First bit of homework is this. Okay, home study. Here are three highlighters. I've actually nicked them from the pastor's study, so I'm going to give them back now. Three hi- he likes to color in, you know. Anyway, there we are, like me, Brother Terry. There we go. Three highlighters. Can you go through Mark's gospel and highlight how the disciples are blind to these three issues? Color in your Mark's gospel. That's the first one. Second, a bit of home, home study Can you please tell your testimony in the light of when you came to see Christ's identity, when you came to understand his death for you, when you came to understand what it meant to follow him? So do you see, your testimony is is about how how were your blind eyes opened? Put your testimony along that. And then thirdly, thirdly, just as as, uh, we didn't manage to do the homework on that, what happens actually if you cross out mission? If people Say you come from a lovely Christian home and you say, well, look, my, my parents are amazing Christians, my brother is, but I can't do it. How do pe- what happens if people don't understand the death of Jesus for them, the mission? What happens with them? Or what happens actually if they don't understand the identity? So they know, they know why he died, they know what it means to follow him, but actually Jesus is one of many ways. And what I'd like you to do is, just, just as we close, think of a non, someone who's, who's in the past been Christian, but they've broken your heart. So just think of someone now who, they should be sitting next to you today, but they're not here. I think of Alistair I was at school with. He was a fine Christian. He's nowhere now. Which one of these three did they not understand? Which one, that person who's broken your heart, which one of these three, who he is, why he came, what it means to follow him, do they not understand? And it's one of these three. And now we've got to pray that we'll have a chance to speak to them and that God will open their blind eyes. So with Alistair, my friend, he got into, he's a medical student, he got to London, he got into rugby circles, and he, I went to his 21st, and I could just see he was not prepared to face the cost of his friend's rejection. He just wasn't ready for the cost. 
We, ha we haven't prepared him properly. And for you, which one do you need to know? So identity, that's God is sovereign, he's in control. Do I really know that? Mission, grace, do I live by grace? Call, am I persevering in the midst of whatever I'm in? So some of you have got really tough, really tough stuff you face, but you, the call to be godly, to persevere, will you do that? Again, it, the gospel is always these three, identity, mission, call. Let's close now. We'll just see a clip, the one-minute ending of Christian Explored to see this underlined as we close. So as our journey through Mark's gospel comes to an end, we're left with three questions. What do you see when you look at Jesus? Is he just a good man or is he the Christ, the Son of God? What do you see when you look at his death? Was it just a tragic waste of a young life? Or is it a rescue, a ransom for many? And finally, what do you see as you consider Jesus' call? Is it a call to come and die? Or can you see that because of his death and resurrection, he's calling you to come and die and live? Thank you that Mark's gospel is so simple and clear. Lord, please give us a godly ambition to teach this book to others, to share it. Please, Lord, may we be men who really are equipped to be able just to say to others, would you like to look at the Bible with me? Give us confidence in handling Mark. Oh, Lord, we ask that. And as we do that, we pray that as we speak of Jesus, we ask that you would open blind eyes. And for that person who's broken our heart, that man who should be here but is away in a far country, Lord, please, by the gospel, bring them back. With that gap in their understanding, please, Lord, help us to, to speak with them, but please do your work. Oh, Lord, we cry to you for them. We shed tears for them. We pray that they'd come back to the full gospel. Amen.